everybody. Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trippiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Most of the time. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., so here I am. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you know how much I love and appreciate you guys. And again, thank you so much for all your love and support. So I know on my last two episodes, I didn't include a life update. And that was pretty much just because it was a really, really long episode to the point that I had to record a part one and a part two. So I didn't really have time to kind of mess around and talk to you guys about what's been going on. Again, remember, I have chapters in the description of my video. If you want to skip this part of the episode and just go to where I'm talking about this week's gangster, click the chapter of his early days and you'll skip all my blabbering. So first of all, it is pouring outside. So if you hear like water or anything like that in the background, I am so hot right now. So I have my window open, so you might hear rain. So just wanted to give you guys a heads up. So to be completely honest, I'm pretty goddamn down right now. Life has been kicking my ass lately, man. I tell you, I've been updating you guys on my IVF journey. And I just found out on my birthday that I need to have a surgery before I can move forward with doing another round of IVF or really before doing anything. That's super depressing considering I was already a few weeks into a round when I found out that I had to get the surgery. So now I just have to stop everything. I have to stop the medications and I can't do an embryo transfer this month and I need to get a surgery and then I have to wait a few more weeks to start another round of IVF, which is not the greatest thing. I think I've mentioned before on here that I have tumors in a bunch of different places on my body. They're benign, but for some unknown reason, I grow tumors everywhere. Well, this time there's one in my uterus and it has to be removed before I can move forward with another round. Also, I have been feeling like shit lately. I just feel like I have a really, really bad head cold or something. And I've had tumors in my nose for a long time now. I've known about this for a while. And I was supposed to get surgery on it. But when I was going through the process, like I had a surgery scheduled and everything. But when I was going through the process, a doctor mentioned to me that my nose might get bigger. And I noped the fuck out of that doctor's office, never to be seen again. But now my entire airway and my nose is being blocked by a gigantic tumor. Which is like crazy because you can legit touch it. Like it's right here. And I have to get surgery on that as well. I have an appointment scheduled on the 1st with an ENT who does like facial surgery. So maybe I'll feel more confident getting surgery from him than like some VA ENT. But considering the first guy had like three or four surgeries that he was scheduling me for, like in one time, like he wanted to put me out and do like three or four different surgeries, I'm pretty scared to schedule anything. I'm too young to completely destroy my face for the rest of my life. So I've been avoiding this surgery like the plague. And honestly, it's very rare but my nose is something that I actually like about myself. Like, I hate a lot of things about myself. I 
have the worst body image issues in the world. But my nose, I've always really liked it. My nose runs in my family. It's like the Trupiana nose. I've broken it multiple times. I hate it every day because it's stuffy. I have a scar going across my nose. I can flip my nose upside down. But it's my nose, and I love it, and I'm so scared to have surgery and have it completely change my face and my nose. Even if it means I may actually be able to breathe for once. So, with all, like, the medical issues, it's really starting to just feel like I should just move on from IVF and forget it. Because every time I start thinking about, oh, well, I want to do the IVF, I want to get pregnant, it's like, oh, well, I need this surgery, I need to get this done, blah, 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 blah. And it really starts to feel like IVF is just unrealistic. I've heavily considered getting a surrogate. I already have all my eggs, so I could legit just put them into a girl and it would be my kid with my eggs, but just not grown by me. But if you don't know anybody personally that will do it for you, it's like $150,000. The $150,000, it's just not going to happen. It's unfeasible for me, so I'm this close to calling it. Like, this close to just calling it and accepting that I'm not going to have kids and be a dog mom for the rest of my life. I approached my cousin to ask her if she'd be willing to do it because this is something we've talked about our entire lives. I've known forever that I've had issues with having kids. I've known like literally since I was like 17 years old, I've known. And we've always talked about it. And she was always saying like, I swear to God, I'll have a kid for you. Like I will do it. She was 100% down. She literally ghosted me. Like, I went to her and asked her about it, and she ghosted me. I haven't talked to her in weeks. This is legit my best friend. Like, I talk to her every single day, all day, every day. I've raised this girl. Like, there's no human being in the world other than my husband that I am closer to than my cousin. And she just stopped talking to me. Like, I didn't even get a happy birthday. She just completely ghosted me. So I guess that relationship is done and over with, which is great. Love that for me. And she's done some really bad shit to me. Like, she has screwed me over pretty badly time and time again, and I've just wanted to maintain that relationship. So I always just look past it. And even with this, I'm like, I can't believe that you just ghosted me, but I'm still here. Like, if you want to talk, if you want to whatever, like, I don't even care. If you say no and you don't want to do it, that's fine. Like, I'll accept that and I'll move on. But to just ghost me and not even have a conversation about it, like, I don't know what to do with that. And I know she's going to hit me up in three, four, five months and say, oh, you know, I just didn't know how to tell you that I wasn't comfortable with it. But if you can ghost me and not talk to me for X amount of time, like, obviously I don't matter to you. So what am I supposed to do with that? I can't just chase somebody around and beg them to be there for me. Because every time she needs it, I'm there. So again, um, accepting applications for a female BFF, I've actually kind of considered going on Bumble and finding girl friends because I don't have any female friends whatsoever. And... A female friend is, like, important, you know? Like, there's ways that girls will be there for you that your husband just can't, so... I don't know. I'll figure it out. Other than that, I mean, my husband has a sister, but 
when we approached her about it, she said that she didn't want to get made fun of and called Phoebe from Friends. So she's unwilling to do it. And I don't really have anybody else in my life. So, you know, it's just you have to come to a point where you just accept that things are the way they are. And I'm still trying because I don't feel like I'm at that point yet but I'm getting there. Like I'm getting really, really close to just, okay, this is never going to happen. Move on. So I'm going to get the surgery. I'm going to do one other round, maybe two. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Like I just got to call it and accept it for what it is. So yeah, I don't know. I've just really not been feeling like I have a lot to be happy about these days. Things can always be worse, I know that, but it's fucking hard, man. One piece of cool news, though, is that I was thinking about getting a 3D printer, like, months and months and months ago, but the cost was, like, huge. Like, it was, like, $1,500 to get a freaking 3D printer. And honestly, like, if I was, like, a pro at it and I had a billion things I could do with it, I would have invested in it. But the cost was just too high and I wasn't 100% sure that I'd be able to do anything with it. So I didn't get it and I just moved on. But my crazy ass father decided to go out and buy it for me for my birthday. And it is so cool. The things that it does is amazing. Like it prints with resin and I'm so excited to start playing with it. The only downside is that it is gigantic, so it's not, like, mobile. I can't really move it around, so once I set it up, like, that's it. It's set up forever. And my house is a train wreck, so since it has to stay in one location and my house is a mess, I don't have, like, one location to set it up in yet, so I just gotta, like, clean my house and then I'll be able to set it up, but I'm so excited. I have so many ideas for, like, cool little things that I'm gonna do and, like, I'm gonna make, and I'll probably be setting up, like, a little shop with cute little bundles that anybody can get if they're interested. I had so many ideas when I was looking the first time. Like, I wanted to make packs, like a makeup lover's pack. And in that pack, you would get a lipstick keychain, a makeup brush cleanser pad, a lipstick organizer, a jewelry box, an eyelash tray, a lipstick holder, a mirror, a makeup palette tray, and a brush organizer. I also had other ideas and like I had ideas to make a 420 friendly kit with like a weed keychain, a lighter holder, an incense holder, a rolling tray, a jar for a stash and like a grinder, a candle holder and an ashtray and a joint roller. So there's all kinds of really cool stuff that I can do once I actually get this 3D printer set up. So let me know if you guys have any things that you'd like to see in my shop and whether or not you'd be interested in buying something. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into this week's gangster. This is going to be an interesting one because we're going to be talking about a man who was like a legit real gun shooter. He was an Irish American gangster, a mobster, a bootlegger, and is said to have led the Saltus McEarlene gang. Today we're going to be going over Frank McEarlene. So let's get started.
Frank McAirlain was born in the vibrant city of Chicago, Illinois, on January 4th, 1894. At the time, Chicago was a bustling metropolis in the Midwestern United States that was experiencing a huge growth and transformation at the time that he was born. Chicago was a city on the rise. It was quickly becoming the hub of industry, culture, and innovation. It was also a city with a significant immigrant population. McAirlane was born into an Irish family. Growing up in Chicago, Frank would have witnessed the construction of some of the city's most iconic landmarks. The Chicago's World Fair, which took place in 1893, was just a year before his birth. So I'm sorry to disappoint, but there really isn't any information at all whatsoever on this guy about his childhood. I don't know if he went to school. I don't know if he dropped out. I don't really know anything about his family. I know he has one brother, but I know nothing else. So usually in these videos, I'll go back through how many brothers and sisters he has, where he went to school, if he graduated or not. That kind of information just isn't available, so I can't give it to you guys. But that's okay, because there is plenty on him growing up. Frank McAirlane was a notorious criminal who first came into contact with the criminal justice system at the age of 17 years old in the year 1911. His first arrest was for his involvement in a car theft ring, which was a serious crime at the time. McAirlane's criminal activity caught the attention of law enforcement officials, and soon he was sentenced to go to Pontiac Prison in June of 1913. I don't know if he was in jail between 1911 when he was arrested and 1913 when he was sentenced to Pontiac Prison, but if he was, I assume time served would have gone towards that prison sentence. Pontiac Prison was a maximum security prison located in Livingston County, Illinois. It was notorious for the harsh conditions that prisoners dealt with and its brutal treatment of prisoners, so he didn't have a very good time there. While he was in prison, he was exposed to a life of crime and violence, which only served to fuel his criminal activities. And that's a huge thing that the American justice system does. It takes small-time offenders like Frank McAirlane. He was just doing some car robberies. And it'll turn them into, like, hardened criminals, and they come out ready to kill. There's no part of the American justice system that is trying to rehabilitate people. Like, yeah, there's schools and stuff like that that you can do in prison. But at the end of the day, it's way more geared towards punishment than rehabilitation. And you get cases like this where... Frank McAirlane turns into a murderer and a serial killer at that. And who knows if that would have been the case if he wasn't sent to a maximum security prison for a crime as small as a car theft ring. It was nonviolent. He didn't hurt anybody. There was no drugs. Like, he was just stealing cars. But we'll never know what could or could not have been because that is what happened. And he comes out and he's a hardened criminal. And this is not the last time that McAirlane will see himself behind bars. He's going to get arrested a bunch of times. After serving three years at Pontiac Prison, so he must have gotten a five-year sentence and then did time served, and he was in jail between 1911 and 1913, and then was given three extra years, so a five-year sentence. So after he served that at Pontiac Prison, he was released on parole in March of 1916. His newfound freedom was very, very short-lived. 
He found himself back in trouble and was arrested only eight months later in connection with the murder of an Oak Park police officer named Herman J. Mallow Jr. So we have this man who went from a car theft ring to murdering a police officer. The murder of Officer Mallow was a shocking and violent crime, and it was something that the entire community knew about. It occurred on November 22, 1916. Mallow was on duty patrolling the streets of Oak Park, Illinois, when he was shot and killed by two men who were attempting to rob a local grocery store. Shortly after the murder, police arrested two men, Fred Burke and Joseph Redder. And these two men were suspected of the crime. They were the ones that were tied into the actual robbery of the grocery store. During their interrogation, they named Frank McAirlane as an accessory to the murder, saying that he was the one that drove the getaway car. So the long and the short of it is, he got ratted out. The police didn't catch him. He wasn't caught in, like, CCTV, nothing. He got ratted out. McAirlane was subsequently arrested and charged with murder. He stood trial in April of 1917, and he was found guilty along with Burke and Reeder. Burke and Reeder were sentenced to life in prison. Because obviously not only did they rob this grocery store, but they killed an officer. Let me tell you, these two men are not going to have a very good time in prison. As soon as the police guards hear that they're in jail for killing a police officer, their life is going to get very, very hard, very, very fast. McGarrelyne's sentence was a little different, and he was only sentenced to one year in prison. Now, after being convicted of murder and sentenced to another year in prison, you would assume, like, okay, he's gonna repent, he's gonna get a little better, like, this is bad. You got found guilty of murder, but this was just the beginning for McGarrelyne. At some point, he was transferred to Joliet Prison, a maximum security prison located in Joliet, Illinois. During his time at Joliet Prison, he made an attempt to escape. His plan was discovered, and he was caught before he could make a getaway. But, even though he didn't actually get away, and he didn't escape, as a result of his escape attempt, he was given an additional two years in prison. So, all of the punishment and none of the reward, he didn't even get to, like, make it out of prison grounds. Joliet Prison is another one of those prisons that's known for its harsh conditions and the really hard life that prisoners live. It has strict discipline, and McAirlane would have found life there to be very, very difficult. The prison was overcrowded, and inmates were subjected to long hours of manual labor, and the food was really bad, like really, really, really poor quality. And medical care was minimal to none. If you got hurt, or you were sick, sucks to suck, man. Nothing was done for you. It was during this prison sentence that Frank made friends with Joseph Polak Joe Saltese, who he would later go into business with. Frank McAirlane was described by the Illinois Crime Survey as the most brutal gunman to ever pull a trigger in Chicago. During the 1920s, Chicago was in the midst of the Prohibition era, and the illegal trade of alcohol was rampant. I've said it before, I'll say it again, Prohibition created the Mafia. And not only did it create the Mafia, but it created a whole lot of outlying criminals that would work with the Mafia. Illegally trading alcohol was the thing to do. Everybody did it. 
gangs were fighting for control of the lucrative bootlegging industry, and McAirlean was one of the most prominent figures in the underworld. He was known at the time as a notorious killer who terrorized the city during the Prohibition era. He became involved in bootlegging and other illegal activities, and soon he got a reputation as a ruthless killer. He's said to have murdered at least nine men. He also murdered a woman and two dogs during his criminal career. We'll talk about that later. But he did do it, and that earned him the moniker The Angel of Death. McAirlane's most infamous act was the murder of Kitty Malm, who was shot to death in a bar in 1927. It was said that McAirlane had mistaken her for a rival gang member and opened fire on her. He also allegedly shot two dogs that belonged to a rival gang member, which is pretty wild because I didn't know that they were talking about something like this because he'll shoot another two dogs later. But yeah, Frank McAirlane is over here just shooting and killing dogs all over the place. What a wonderful person. Another notorious crime that he's known for is his introduction of the Thompson submachine gun, also known as a Tommy gun, into Chicago's bloody bootleg wars. And everybody thought it was Al Capone that introduced the Thompson submachine gun because he was so well known for using it, but he is not the one that introduced this into Chicago. Frank McGarlane is. The gun was a really powerful submachine gun that could fire up to a thousand rounds per minute. McAirlane was credited with introducing this gun into Chicago's gangland violence, and it changed the game. Like, it's pretty much a machine gun, and it makes a lot of things different. Despite his many crimes, McAirlane managed to evade justice for years, and he was known for his cunning and his ability to stay one step ahead of the law. Robert J. Schoenberg wrote a book about Al Capone titled Mr. Capone, and in this book, he provides us with a vivid description of what Frank McAirlane looked like and seemed like and just his overall feel of him. He wrote that McAirlean was a tall man standing at six feet four inches with a lean and muscular build that spoke of his physical prowess. His rugged and handsome features were marred by a permanent scar that ran down his right cheek, a permanent reminder of a violent encounter with one of his enemies. His piercing blue eyes were said to be cold and calculating, reflecting the merciless nature of his character. Despite his imposing physical presence, McAirlean was also known for his cunning and his intelligence. He was a master manipulator who could charm his way into the hearts and minds of his enemies, his friends, pretty much anyone he wanted to. Using his wit and charisma, he would gain their trust before striking down his enemies ruthlessly and efficiently. Frank was a man of few words. He wasn't really like the chatty type. He wouldn't go and do small talk in the bar. He wasn't no Angelo Ruggiero, you know, like the super chatty type where the FBI is going to bug his home and know they're going to get absolutely everything because all he does is talk like that is not Frank McGarlane. He's a very soft-spoken and withdrawn kind of person. Which, I hate to say it, but most people that, like, kill a lot of people, they usually are. It's pretty rare to find someone that has killed a whole bunch of people and is the type that wants to go and, like, chat it up at a bar and just has nothing but words and words and words coming out of his mouth. Like, that's not 
a very it happens but it's not very often that it happens like if someone is the type that could or would or has killed people you're not gonna see them being the most chatty the most outgoing most of the time they kind of stand back you know they keep to themselves they don't go out of their way to say things that they don't know if it could come back on them they don't go out of their way to put themselves into situations that could get them in trouble and a lot of the time most people don't notice it and they don't even know it but saying something just even opening your mouth to somebody that's putting yourself in a situation if i go up to somebody and i say something any word that comes out of my mouth could be a potential situation. You have no idea what your words and your actions can do. And people that understand that, most of the time you're going to find them not doing that so much. Frank also had a reputation and people knew who he was. So when he would introduce himself, people know him for this scary reputation that he has. He had a habitual glower on his face. Like, he was not a happy person. And it was very indicative of the quick temper that he had on him. He even seemed to have, like, a menacing presence. Reporters often described him as a butter and egg man, which is, like, a term that's used to describe like a businessman or a farmer someone that's like kind of bland like you know he's not having the most exciting breakfast but it's food you don't usually see dangerous criminals being described this way but at the same time most of the time what you know as a dangerous criminal and what an actual dangerous criminal are are two totally different things you don't know the most dangerous criminals because the most dangerous criminals they've never been caught that's what people really don't understand they look at people like ted bundy or like these uber scary people in their world and they're like oh that's what a criminal looks like that's the kind of things that a criminal does no the worst of the worst you're never going to know anything about them because they're not going to get caught. They're dangerous because they're good at what they do. They can kill a billion people and it will not matter because you won't ever know about it. That's what makes them dangerous and that's also what keeps them out of jail. It's a little weird because I see him described like two completely different ways in two completely different places. So in that book... The one Mr. Capone, he's described as a tall man standing at six feet four inches with a lean and muscular build. And then there's articles about him. And the article that I'm looking at says McAirlane stood at a modest five foot eight inches and weighted at 190 pounds with a portly figure that suggested a comfortable lifestyle. Those are very, very, very different descriptions. And I know that they're talking about the same person. So that's like kind of the crazy thing is it's like maybe his persona just came off different to different people. I don't really know. But it's very rare that you see two reports talking about the exact same person, but the description of them is so different. So I don't know which one's correct. Because they're both talking about the same person. They're writing about what they comprehend him as. I, I don't know. I haven't found any like arrest records or anything that would cement in 
stuff about his like his description, what he looked like. Looking at physical pictures of him, honestly, I would tend to lean more towards the five foot eight. I've seen him in lineups, and he doesn't look like six foot four. You're gonna stand out in a lineup, like you're gonna be head and shoulders above the other guys around you. And when I see him in a lineup, kind of looks like he's the same height as the guys around him, which five foot eight fits that a lot better. Also, when you look at pictures of him, he doesn't look like he's, like, lean and muscular, you know, like a bodybuilder type. That's not what he looks like. He looks like an average dude, honestly. Like, I wouldn't notice this guy if I was walking down the road. If he was walking on going the other way, like, I would not stop and look at him. So, someone that was six foot four and, like, lean, I would stop and look at that person. Just because it's something that you don't see every day. It's not, like, a common description. So you just notice things that are a little different, and McAirlane doesn't seem like that. So I'm weighing towards the five foot eight, 190 pounds, comfortable lifestyle, you know, nothing too crazy or different about him. Don't mind my pup in the background, that's Julie. Julie, say hi. Julie, hey, come here. Pick your head up. Good girl, say hi. Hi. Hi, Julie. She's a little cranky. She doesn't want to be... You can lay down, girl. Good girl. She's a little cranky. She doesn't want to be by herself, so I let her in on recording. She's a very quiet dog, so I don't really got to worry about her. You won't see my other two dogs very often. Hulk and Zeus, they don't hang out so much. But Julie's a good girl, so she can hang out. Either way, whichever of the descriptions that you believe as far as like his height and his stature, he had blue eyes. Everybody talked about his blue eyes. And something that's pretty uncommon is that his eyes, they didn't seem scary. He didn't walk around with, like, this gaze that was just, I'm gonna kill you all the time. Like, he, again, just seemed like somebody that you would just pass on the street and not notice. He carried around a rosary in his pocket all the time. Like, you would not catch him without a rosary in his pocket. And a lot of the time, that rosary was sat right next to his pistol. His face was always red, (laughs) which I think is a big part of the Irish. I think a lot of Irish people, they are pale. They get red in the face pretty often. That's a pretty typical Irish thing. And even though you couldn't really see it in his gaze that he had this anger, you could see it in the way that he acted. He had a hairpin trigger. He could go from zero to a hundred, especially when he was drunk and he drank a lot. He was very quick to anger and very prone to violence. People tended to try to avoid him when he was drunk because he was just so quick to anger. You had to walk on eggshells so much that like nobody wanted to be around him. It's scary. It's safer outside his presence. I mentioned earlier that when he did a prison sentence, he became friends with Joseph Polak Joe Saltis. At this point, together the two men launch a gang shortly after Prohibition began. They led a gang together that operated on the south side of Chicago in the back of the yards area. Which, if you're from Chicago, tell me if that makes sense. I don't know. I mean, it's the same way, like, in New York, if somebody says, like, oh, they were downtown in Manhattan, they were in the the Fidei District, I would know exactly where they were talking about. I don't know back of the yards. 
I'm not from Chicago, never been. So if that makes sense to you, let me know. I, I don't know. But apparently back of the yards area is like a thing. So Frank and Polak Joe Saltus, they are two of the most notorious gangsters for the entire Prohibition era, which is saying a lot because the Prohibition era, I would say that era churned out more notorious criminals than any other era before it or after, honestly. Think about it. Al Capone, you got Lucky Luciano, Albert Anastasia, like all the big, big name criminals, they come from Prohibition era. Frank and Joseph were known for their ruthless tactics, and they were also known for their fierce loyalty to each other. They were like brothers. Like, they got to know each other in prison, and outside of prison, they were very, very loyal to each other, good to each other, and as easy as it was to trip Frank's anger, it didn't really happen with Joseph. Together, they both saw the opportunity to make a disgusting amount of money during Prohibition by obviously supplying alcohol to the thirsty masses. Joseph Saltus was a notorious gangster who rose to prominence early in the 20th century. He was born in Budapest in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1890, and his parents' names, I'm not even going to try to pronounce. His father... Middle name Jacob Saltus and mother is Maria Polachek, I'm guessing. The family immigrated to the United States in 1905 where they settled in Joliet, Illinois. And he immigrated when he was 15 years old. Sorry I sound like a complete idiot, guys. I know, I know, I sound so nasally. I talked at the beginning of the episode about how I have tumors in my nose. Well, my nose is completely stopped, like, at all times. I can't ever breathe. I'm always sniffling. And it's just completely stopped right now. And I will, like, pause my videos. I'll pause it and try to get a little breathing in my nose so I don't sound so stupid. But it's literally how I am 24-7. So guess what? I'm just going to have to make the video like this. There's no getting better. I can't wait until it gets better because it doesn't get better. Right now, I am four Zyrtex and... Six Tylenol cold and flus in, and I still sound like this, so I give up. I'm recording like this. Soltis established himself in Joliet as a saloon owner, and he was operating several establishments in the city at a pretty young age. Like, this kid hit the ground running. But from the very beginning, his legitimate business ventures were just a cover for his true activities. He would run illegal gambling operations, and he got deep into bootlegging as soon as Prohibition started, and that is really what he was doing. Like, he had legitimate sources of income. He didn't need to be doing criminal activities. He just wanted to. He had already established a network of illegal gambling and bootlegging operations when he went into partnership with McAroleen. When they met in prison, they kind of just recognized a kindred spirit in each other. They were both very ambitious and ruthless. They both had a talent for making money and a willingness to use force to get what they wanted. They were both experienced gangsters with a reputation already in place for violence. And as soon as they met, they were like, oh, you're my person. 
which personally, I know exactly how that is, okay? I went to basic training. I met this girl. Literally, I looked at her, and just based on the way she looked, I was just like, all right, you're my person, and that was it. Like, she didn't have a say in it. That girl became my best friend right away, and we were attached at the hip all throughout basic training, and it was just because I looked at her, and I was like, mm, yep, you're it. Guess what? We're best friends now, and I think that was the same thing. Like, when you get into a situation like Mick Erlane was in when he got into prison, or like I was in when I went into basic, like when you're in a situation like that where you need, not want, you need support around you, you need friends, you're gonna lay your eyes on one person, pick that person, and then if you make additional friends, awesome. But that one person is gonna be your person. And I don't know, I don't know if that's like a common thing for other people to do, but I've always done it. As soon as I get into a situation like that where I need a partnership with at least one person, I'm going to pick one person and they don't have a say. They don't have a chance to tell me like, hey, I actually hate you. Like, no, mm -mm. I'm not hearing that best friend. Shut up. Okay. You're just joking. You love me. Okay. Like that person, you don't have a choice. I am now your best friend. Got it? We're best friends. Get on board. So these new BFFs, they realize that they have a common goal, and their goal is that they want to control the lucrative bootlegging trade going on. And they want to make as much money as possible, and they don't mind doing criminal shit to get there. Obviously, they met in prison, so they don't care that they're criminals. So, you know, it is what it is. Let's go make some money together, bruh. Their partnership ended up being a really beneficial one. Because they kind of, like, complemented each other. Like, McAirlene is known for being this, like, fearless, quick-to-anger, crazy person that'll kill you in a second. And Saltus is known as having this, like, business acumen and strategic thinking. He'll think about what he does before he does it. And that complements each other in a lot of different ways. Wherever one had a weakness, the other one was there to have that strength. It's like opposites attract kind of thing. Soltis and McAirlane became known as the Terrible Two, a fearsome duo that controlled all the criminal activities in Joliet and its surrounding areas. And that is a wild thing to say for anywhere in Illinois, honestly, because you got Al Capone in Chicago. So to say that you control criminal activities in any area of Illinois is a pretty bold assumption or a bold statement to make. In order to defeat the Southside O'Donnell brothers, McAirlane and Saltus joined up with Johnny the Fox Torrio and Al Capone and their Chicago outfit in 1922. McAirlane had a reputation for being an extremely vicious killer. And obviously, obviously, Al Capone hears this and he's like, oh, pfft. Cha-ching, that's my dude. Come in, bring it in, bruh. Bring it in, we're biffles now. So, like, Al Capone is a crazy person. He loves the type of people that'll just kill someone and not feel bad about it. So as soon as Al Capone hears the reputation that McAirlane has gotten on him, he's like, oh, score, my dude, my dude, what's up? Like, they're, they're friends. McAirlane was very well known to consume excessive amounts of the products that he sold. So you know that saying, like, 
don't get high on your own supply. Like, yeah, McAirlane didn't listen to that at all. He was getting high on his own supply. He would frequently experience alcoholic insanity, which that is no joke, man. Honestly, I say it a lot. And this is not meant to be an insult to anybody that has any problems with alcohol, okay? It's really not. I love all people. But from my own experiences, I would rather deal with a drug addict than an alcoholic any day of the week. I could totally handle somebody that is addicted to drugs. Like, they're predictable. I know what they're gonna do. I know, okay, like, you know, most people that are addicted to drugs, they're gonna steal shit from you, okay? Because they don't care. They will steal from their own mother to get high because they don't want to be sick. Like, that's just something you know. You know to watch out for it. You know to prevent something like that. But alcoholics, man, (laughs) no joke. Like, they got some shit going on. Okay, so if you're somebody that has experienced problems with alcohol, I'm very sorry to hear that. If you're somebody that is clean from that, that is an amazing thing because I have seen so many lives be completely destroyed by it and people go their entire lives being alcoholics. So if you're somebody that has come back from that, that's amazing to hear and I'm so proud of you. If you're somebody that's currently in it, please go get help because, oh my God, alcoholics are the worst. Again, my own experience. Maybe you're an alcoholic and you're a great time. I don't know. But my own experience, alcoholics, not the type of people you want to be friends with. So not only does McAirlane have the fact that, uh, I don't know, he's ready to kill somebody like that, like he, he doesn't care. He'll kill you. So he's got that. And then on top of it, he's an alcoholic with alcoholic and insanity, which great. This just seems like a great person to hang out with. Like, no, his face would become more red with every drink that he took, which made even his most dangerous criminal allies nervous. Despite their success, their partnership was not without its challenges. Obviously, nobody's perfect, so everybody's going to have problems of some kind. So these two, they have problems pretty much when you describe these two. The problems that you would expect them to have, they have. McAirlane is very well known for his volatile temper, and Soltis had to work pretty hard to keep that in check. There was a decent amount of disagreements over money and power, which you're always going to have when there's any kind of criminal element to what you're doing. And sometimes that even led to violent clashes between them. And sometimes it even went out to their respective factions. In the end, though, their partnership, it was fruitful. It was good. They worked well together, and they ended up being some of the most powerful and feared criminals and gangsters of their entire time. They made a lot of money, and they were able to avoid prosecution for a long time, especially thanks to their political connections. Soltis was known to have very close ties to the Democratic Party in Chicago, and he was able to use those close ties to bribe and intimidate all of law enforcement officials and judges in Chicago. So let me paint a picture for you of the night of September 7th, 1923. The illegal liquor trade is at its peak, 1923, Prohibition started in 1920, so this is just getting ramped up. At the time, rival gangs are looking for control of this lucrative business. The O'Donnell Gang is one of the most notorious and feared groups in the city. It's a Friday night, and it is pouring rain outside. A bunch of guys from the O'Donnell Gang walk into a saloon owned by Jacob Geis, and they start hassling him. 
See, they had visited a few days earlier, and they insisted that he buy his beer from them. But he's like, nah, I already got a guy. I'm already buying from the Saltus McGarling gang. Thanks anyways. Thanks, but no thanks. Carry on. So September 7th, a bunch of guys from the O'Donnell gang, namely Stephen, Tommy, and Walter O'Donnell, George Megan, and Jerry O'Connor, they go into Geis's bar. And they're like, all right, once and for all, you are going to buy your beer from us, period. And he's like, nah, I'm good. Thanks, but no thanks. I already got a guy. I don't want your shit. And these guys drag Geis across the bar and start beating his ass. Dude ends up in the hospital, barely holding on to his life, but regardless of how bad he's beaten, he never strays from the fact that he will be continuing to buy his beer from the Saltus McGarlane gang. Now, I don't know if that says something to his loyalty, or the fact that the Saltus McGarlane gang is so scary that the thought of buying from somebody else and going up against them is just like, you just kill me, man. I don't really know which one that is. I'm guessing that the Saltus McGarlane gang is just that freaking scary. The O'Donnell crew visited another five saloons that night, and all the visits looked the same. Their last stop was a bar called Klepka's. As they're hassling the barkeep at Klepka's, they're met with Ralph Sheldon, Daniel McFall, and two other dudes that are in the McAirland gang. These guys come in, guns blazing, and they start taking out O'Donnell's. After a shootout, everybody got away except Jerry O'Donnell. McFall was able to grab Jerry O'Donnell and he brings him out back, out into the back of the bar. Out in the back, McAirlane is waiting and he takes out O'Donnell. Like he literally takes half his head off with a shotgun and he is not playing no games. Like he straight up, this guy doesn't have a gun. It's not a shootout. It's not a fight. He's just like, boom, you're gone. Like I'm tired of this shit. They take his body and they dump it on the front porch of a doctor and they speed off. Ten days later, on September 17th, McFull and McAirlane were in the back of a green touring car being driven by Thomas Hoban. And they pull up to a car containing George Buecher and George Meekin. And they light this car up. Like, you could see this car from goddamn space. And the bodies of both Georges were left in the car at the corner of Laughlin and Garfield Boulevard. And it's, like, a funny coincidence because at the time, the way that, like, nowadays, if somebody dies, you call the cops and everything. But if the person is just dead, there's no chance of saving them. A medical examiner is going to come and just pretty much pronounce the person dead and transport the body. The same thing was going on then. So the doctor that showed up to like, hey, they're dead. You know, they have 150 bullet holes in each of them, but I'm just saying that they're dead. The doctor that showed up to do that is the same doctor who they dropped O'Donnell's body off at the day before. So, or 10 days before. I don't know. It was just like a funny little coincidence. It wasn't really that big of a deal, but I thought it would get a haha from you, so... The next day, the headlines read, Frank McGarlane kills three O'Donnell gangsters. And now, that next day, when that headline hit, that attack kicked off what would come to be known as the Beer Wars in Chicago. The next attack took place on a highway between Chicago and Joliet on December 1st, 1923, at around 1.30 in the morning. Two O'Donnell beer trucks were ambushed. 
William Shorty Egan and Thomas Maury Keene, the occupants of one of those trucks, were thrown into a vehicle that contained Frank McAirlane and Willie Channel, the driver. Despite the horrific events that followed, Egan actually survived. And the great thing about the fact that he survived is that he provided testimony on the scary life and death encounter that was about to happen. The testimony goes like this. The driver immediately questions the man holding the shotgun and says, where are you going to get rid of these guys? I'll take care of that in a minute. The obese man chuckles. So I'm guessing that the obese man, the guy that they're going to refer to as the fat guy, that's McAirlane. The guy holding the shotgun, I'm thinking, is Willie Channel. He gives testimony about the savage attack and pretty much just describes how the both of them were shot multiple times and then thrown out of a moving vehicle at like 50 miles an hour. Egan miraculously survived his one-way ride and identified Willie Channel as one of his attackers, despite having nearly half his face blown off. McAirlane was later apprehended, but he was able to escape prosecution of both Egan and the attack on the Georges. His behavior continued to worsen. On May 4th, 1924, McAirlane is hanging out in a bar and he's hanging out with two friends, John O'Reilly and Alex McCabe. They're hanging out in this like random bar in Crown Point, Indiana, and they're just like shooting the shit. They're just chilling and they're joking around. Now, O'Reilly and McCabe, they're joking around and they're like, oh, show off your shooting skills. Because he's like bragging. He's like, I'm the best shot here. I can shoot anything. And they're like, oh, show it off. Show it off. Come on. We want to see your skills. Show off your shooting skills. You're so great. Show us your skills, bruh. And he's like, I will. Don't test me. I will. And they're like, do it. Do it. Do it. And he's like, no, like, I I will. Like, you're pushing me, man. You're pushing me, and I'm about to show off. And they're like, do it. So he's like, all right, I'll do it. And he pulls out his gun, and he shoots a random guy at the bar. Like, one shot, right to the head, dead. This random guy. No, nothing. No beef, no, not even, like, an argument, not a conversation. Dude didn't even look at him. He just wanted to show off, so he pulled his gun out and shot this guy in the head. The guy that he shot was Thaddeus S. Fancher, and he was an attorney that was just having a drink at the bar. This murder would come up later to, like, bite him in the ass, obviously, because you don't just pull out a gun and shoot a random person and kill them without at least something coming up. So we will revisit this, but just this is where he just shoots and kills a random attorney for no reason whatsoever. McAirlane was bailed out with a $5,000 bail, but as he was walking out, Steege arrested him. Apparently, there was a fugitive warrant out for him about the murder of a Crown Point lawyer, Thaddeus. That's pretty messed up that they allowed him to be bailed out. Like, they could have just pressed the charges and not allowed him bail and kept him in jail. But no, they had to be all dramatic. Oh yeah, you can have $5,000 bail, and then it gets posted, and... Oops, we forgot you had a warrant. What assholes. It would take until August of that year for him to be returned to Indiana. On November 3rd, 1927, McGarley would be found not guilty for the killing of Fancher after the murder of at least one witness and significantly altered testimony. The crazy thing is, John O'Reilly was sitting in Michigan City Prison and waiting to testify against McGarley for Thaddeus' murder, which... 
he did commit. McAirley did kill Thaddeus. Thaddeus was the one that was in the bar minding his own business and his friends like amped him up and oh, bet you can't shoot him. And he randomly shot him. So McAirley did kill Thaddeus. But McAirley pulls off some crazy shit with a witness. And before you know it, O'Reilly is sitting in jail for the rest of his life for this murder. When I first saw that O'Reilly was sitting in jail for a murder that McAirlane had committed, I felt a little bad about it. But I don't feel bad about it anymore because I found out that O'Reilly had already turned rat before he was incorrectly pinned for the murder. Plus, he was one of the two people that were amping him on and telling him to do it. Again, in the next two and a half years, McAirlane looked to have vanished from the public eye, and that was because he was sitting in prison on the charge of the Thaddeus murder. This took McAirlane out of the fold for the remainder of the beer wars that are going on. The attacks continue, but Frank just isn't there to see it. Minners made two attempts to kill Vincent, Frank's brother, in July of 1926. Neither were successful. Minners Foley was killed by Saltus on August 6, 1926. All four killers, which included Saltus, Frank Lefty Consul, John Dingbat Oberta, and Earl Herbert were arrested within days, and trial was set really quickly for October, only two months later, which usually you see a bigger length of time in between the arrest and the trial. They wanted to get this trial done fast. Vincent McAirlane was arrested on September 15, 1926, for a train robbery that he pulled off with Peter Gusenberg. Now, this arrest is going to cause all types of drama because the Saltus McAirlane gang, they had pretty tight ties to Capone. Vincent McAirlane, when he was arrested, he was arrested with Gusenberg. If you watched my Al Capone video, which I do tag below, you know that Gusenberg is a member of the Northside gang, and he's one of the victims of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So when Vincent, who is in a gang that's really tight with Capone, is arrested with Gusenberg, who is in a gang that is a rival of Capone's, Capone is really pissed to hear that his boys were arrested with the enemy. Jaime Weiss was killed on October 11th, 1926, the day of the trial for Saltis and his boys that was about to begin. Like that day. Weiss was currently in the process of trying to buy the jury to get the Saltis boys off on their charges. And when his body was found, there was a list of jurors in his pocket. His plan was to pay $100,000 to a jury member to guarantee a hung jury or a not guilty plea. Now, this is another huge issue for the Saltus McAirlane gang. Another slap in the face to Capone. It's very public that all of this treachery is taking place behind Capone's back. And in Chicago, Capone is the last person that you want to piss off. So now, Saltus and Vincent McAirlane, they're both fucked. They know it, Capone knows it, everybody in the gang knows it. Like, they're in a very bad spot. Word is out that they're working with the enemy. And if that's not bad enough, the enemy just died, which leaves the Saltus McAirlane gang sitting, like, with their dicks in their hands. On October 21st, 1926, a sit-down was scheduled, and the purpose was pretty much just to talk about peace between Capone and his crew and the Saltus McAirlane gang. And they're pretty much at war right now because of what's going on with these arrests. 
Members of the Soltis McAirlane gang were represented by Maxie Eisen. Since the Soltis McAirlane gang, they're sitting in jail. Peace was achieved at this meeting, but the Soltis McAirlane gang, they broke the treaty within two months. McAirlane had an infamous arrest during this time for arriving drunk to a court hearing. And then the jailer that was escorting him was also drunk. Saltus and his boys were acquitted of the murder of Mitters somewhere in the time between the October 21st sit-down and December 30th. So Saltus is now free and out of jail. So he's acquitted, not guilty, out of jail. On December 30th, a member of the Sheldon gang, Hillary Clements, was killed. Now, Sheldon, he seems like a dude that, like, he has his head on straight. Because instead of flipping out and going on a killing spree, he brings this to Capone. He's like, hey, dude, like, we had a treaty and this dude just broke it. Do something. Capone orders two men from the Saltis McAirlane gang be sacrificed as punishment. Frank Lefty Consul and Charles Big Hayes Hubeck were killed. That might be Hubbisek. I don't really know. I, I might be completely off there. So there's a lot of controversy over what comes next. It's very unclear. So like some sources say that McAirlane went to the Atlantic City Conference in 1929. Certain Chicago historians say that that's the case, but a lot of people say that it isn't. And then there's certain people that say that McAirlane left the Saltus McAirlane gang and went over to the O'Donnell side and joined the O'Donnells. It does seem like it could have happened that McAirlane left and joined the O'Donnells because Saltus is the one that's like in this beef with Capone. Saltus is the one that started it. Vincent McAirlane got involved, but Frank McAirlane, he's in jail when all of this stuff is going on. When his brother's getting arrested with the enemy, when Saltus has the leader of the gang in the audience trying to pay off jurors, that's all going on while Frank McAirlane is in jail. So McAirlane gets out of jail and he's like, yeah, fuck this. I'm not about to beef with freaking Capone in Chicago. Are you out of your mind? Leaves and goes to the O'Donnell crew. Now that is not verified. Some people say that's not true. It never happened at all. Saltus just kind of like hung back and hung out with himself. But I do believe that he did go over to the O'Donnells. If this is the case, then Pollock Joe must have had mercy on him a few years later because he would be a pallbearer at his funeral. So as much as that would be seen as kind of like a diss or spitting in his face, he got over it. McAirlane was wounded in the leg, and he was taken by ambulance to the German Deaconess Hospital on January 28, 1930. He broke his leg, and his right leg's thigh bone was just shattered because he got shot. It was broken when the slug entered above the knee, and his leg was all fucked up. So when he gets to the hospital, he's getting questioned. And the cops are there because anytime there's a bullet wound, the hospital automatically tells the police about it. 
So as the police are questioning him, he gives an alternate name. He says, my name is Charles Miller. So as they're questioning him, they don't recognize him as the killer in a bootleg battle that is going on and people are dropping dead and he just did time. Like they have no idea who he is in the hospital. He claimed that it was an accident and he got shot while he was cleaning his gun, but that is not what happened. His common-law spouse, Alfreda Regis, a.k.a. Marion Miller, matched his story, but police didn't believe either one of them, and they came to two different conclusions. One was that she was behind it, and she actually shot him. Another potential suspect was John Dingbat Oberta, and they suspected that it could be the common-law wife because they're constantly getting into loud arguments. They are both alcoholics, and they're in an unstable relationship. So after he's shot, the cops go around to, like, neighbors, and they're like, oh, yeah, that family's always doing some crazy shit. And they're like, okay, so maybe she shot him. Or this war that's going on with Oberta, maybe it came from that. We don't really know. But either way, at the end of the day, he's shot. So he has this big bullet hole in his right leg. And on top of having the bullet hole, his leg is broken from the force of this shot. I think it was like a shotgun that took his leg out. So he's in the hospital and he has his leg like in a cast and propped up. So you know those old time movies where they have like that little sling and it's like holding your leg up? He's in one of those things. So he's laying there minding his business on February 24th and two or three armed guys broke through the door and started shooting at him while his leg is propped up in this contraption. Frank returned fire by yanking an automatic weapon that he had hidden under his pillow. And even though his shots are way off target because he has a leg that's tied up to the ceiling, so he's not catching anybody. He didn't catch anybody. But just shooting back at them scared the attackers away because he's sitting in a hospital. He's supposed to be helpless and vulnerable. Nobody expects this man to have a freaking automatic weapon stashed below his pillow. During the flight out of the hospital, one of the attackers dropped a 45 automatic and left it in the hospital as he ran away. The 45 that was left at the scene was traced back to a man named Sam Malaga, who just so happens to be Oberta's bodyguard slash chauffeur. So as much as the police kind of, they landed on that it was his common-law wife that shot him in the leg that landed him in the hospital, but the fact that Oberta had his boys, like, shoot McGarlane up in the hospital, it seems to be that Oberta was probably the one that put him there in the first place. McGarlane, who had been shot three times during the fight, dismissed any inquiries as to who his attackers were or anything about the attack. He said, I'll take care of it. He went on to say, look for them in a ditch. That's where you'll find them. They were a bunch of cheap rats using pistols. I'll use something better. McGarlane takes care of McGarlane. He was left with non-lethal wounds to his chest, left groin, and left wrist. Oberta's body was found in his automobile on the outskirts of Chicago on March 5th, 
only a few hours after McAirlane was discharged from the hospital. Sam Malaga, the driver for Oberta, whose gun was found after he dropped it fleeing from the attack that he had just launched on McAirlane, he was found face down in a watery puddle of some ice. Some may say that his body was found in a ditch, just as McAirlane had promised. Frank had taken care of it, after all. McAirlane's actions got worse and worse, and his mental health had suffered for years due to the high drinking. Like, he was a straight-up alcoholic, and he just kept getting crazier and crazier. On June 8th, 1931, a drunk McAirlane fired shotgun blasts at fictitious enemies as he ran down a block of South Shore Drive. He staggered down 78th Street and Crandon Avenue, sweeping the street with machine gun fire. Which, think about how dangerous that is. First of all, if there had been anybody on that street or the next street or the street down from that, they could have died. Or anybody that was in any of the apartments that he's hitting indiscriminately with this machine gun fire. You hear stories all the time about people dying in their own homes because a bullet comes through the wall and takes them out. And this man is literally just walking down the street, sweeping it with machine gun fire. After this happened, authorities ultimately brought counts against him, which included driving under the influence, biting his sister on the face, carrying a concealed weapon, shooting indiscriminately throughout his neighborhood, having forged license plates, and shooting a shotgun within city limits. On October 8th, 1931, McAirlane and his common-law spouse, Elfrida Regis, they're driving around and they're having a loud and violent argument with each other. Frank is in the driver's seat, common-law wife is in the passenger seat, and in the back seat they have two German Shepherds. As they're driving and fighting, McAirlane pulled the car over and stopped in front of 8129 Phillips Avenue. He turned, he shot Elfrida four times, instantly killing her. And then he turned to the back seat and shot both of the German Shepherds and killed them as well. Which is why in the beginning of this episode, I said I was surprised to hear that he had killed two dogs that didn't have anything to do with this because he killed these two dogs. So when I heard, oh, hey, he has charges for killing dogs, I thought it was these two dogs, but it's not. He has separate charges for killing two separate dogs. So this man's just out here wiping dogs off the face of the earth for no goddamn reason. The police came to the conclusion, the one that McGarlane would go with and hold on to, that he was attacked by an enemy. And the common-law wife and the dogs, they just got caught in the fire. They were casualties of a war. Frank lived. They didn't. The cops quickly threw this theory out. They knew that he was savage enough to do this himself. But he would continue to claim this is what happened. He's like, yeah, I was driving and I pulled over and someone came and lit my car up. I was so lucky to live. They didn't, but mm, we know what really happened. Even with all of that, the police arrested him. They even arrested Vincent for questioning. All of that and they got nowhere. They arrested him for murder, but he was quickly let go due to lack of evidence. Ever since this incident, McAirlane's surviving gang members raised a retirement fund, which was pretty much like a few hundred dollars a week 
to pay to McGarlene to get rid of him. Like, here, we'll literally give you money to stay away from us. Go somewhere, don't get arrested, don't do anything crazy, and we will pay you just to live. Frank moved on to a luxurious houseboat in the Illinois River in Beardstown, Illinois, and that's pretty much where he retired, and he's collecting these retirement payments. He's living by himself because his common law wife is dead. But yeah, his gang, they're paying him to live, and he's living on this luxurious houseboat and staying out of trouble. Frank developed pneumonia in the autumn of 1932. He needed four nurses to hold him down because he was so irrational that he believed that rival gangsters were coming to his hospital room to kill him. He even knocked a nurse out in his delirium. They found four loaded guns under his pillow. They acted like he was like crazy pants, but honestly, he had been attacked in a hospital before. I kind of don't blame him for being scared. His end came on October 8, 1932, exactly one year after killing Elfrida Rugis and her two dogs. Frank McGarlane passed away at the age of 38 years old due to pneumonia. After he died, a reporter talked to some of his old colleagues, and they pretty much said he never did anything good. He didn't ever accomplish anything positive. Nobody liked him anymore, he had no friends left, and he died completely alone. McGarlane's death was celebrated by a lot of people in Chicago. They saw him as a symbol of the city's lawlessness and violence, and him dying meant a change for the better in Chicago. But for others, his passing was a reminder of the brutal realities of life during Prohibition, when gangsters like McGarlane's, they ruled the streets with an iron fist. Today, McGarlane is remembered as one of the most notorious criminals in Chicago's history, a man whose name still sends shivers down the spine of those who know his story. So that is all I have on Frank McGarlane. Thanks so much for watching. Join me next week as I continue to delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!